In Luke 18, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Now, how can Jesus be David's son if he lived almost a thousand years after King David lived? Well, the answer is that Christ the Messiah was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of David. See, Jesus is the promised Messiah, so he had to actually literally be in the lineage of David. And truth be told, if you look at Jesus' genealogy, you see that that is the case. But this phrase, son of David, is much more than genealogy. It's a messianic title. So when people refer to Jesus as the son of David, they mean that they believe that he really is the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament prophecies. Now what's interesting is that the Pharisees understood exactly what the people meant whenever they called Jesus son of David. But unlike those who cried out in faith, the Pharisees were so blinded by their own pride that they could not see what the blind beggars could see. That here was the Messiah they had been waiting all their lives for. So there you go, a little bit about Jesus, why he's called Son of David. And that's enough today for our historical minute. I just want to start tonight, actually, just by first sharing an announcement that James and Alex, James is our worship director here, they had a little baby girl yesterday, and we're very excited about that. And, and then as I announced that, I, they're going to share their name with us tomorrow, but they're surprising their family today, so we'll know that's the part that they were keeping a surprise. Um, but I also want to give kudos to Mike, who served at a, a concert last night, videoing it. The, he makes all the video production for some of these groups that come through, and, um, and he got home really late, but when he heard that James had a kid, he volunteered to come this morning to help out. And then I want to thank all of the praise team. A lot of them are doing, well, all of them are doing double shifts, but even some that are not accustomed to doing that do double shifts so that, so that worship tonight would be good. And so make sure you just, I don't know, say thank you to them after service. It's just a, a cool thing that everybody did. Um, Mike actually was on vacation today and came back and, and to try to do that. So um, just make sure you say thanks to these guys. They did an awesome thing. and We're so excited for James. Okay, with that, let, let me open in prayer tonight. God, we love you so much. And, and I just, I love this church, Lord. I love the way people care for each other. I, I care, I love so much that your word is going out and affecting people for good. I, I love that they more and more want to be your disciples. I, I love the people here tonight that, that in the middle of the summer, Lord, in the middle when it's, actually it's been a beautiful summer, Lord, but in the middle, middle of the summer, Lord, that they're coming here, spending their time just to learn more about you, Lord. This whole teaching service actually is a different kind of message than it is in the morning. And we just get more into the weeds. And I, I love that people are yearning to hear your word and truth. And so we thank you for this church. We thank you for the members and we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. So we're picking up in Luke 18, verse 15. And Jesus is just about ready, okay? Just about ready to go to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is just a little bit away, okay? So this is kind of the last little discourse before he... Uh, starts his trek in, into Jerusalem. Okay, so he's about 17 miles away as we're speaking here tonight. So in verse 15 we pick up. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. Now, there's a few things here that I just want to point out that should bring us comfort. One of the first things is God is a God for everybody, right? I, I did youth ministry for a lot of years, and I was always amazed at the kind of relationships that some of these kids have with their Lord, 
13, 14 years old. And I also did middle school ministry for a lot of years. And I was even more amazed because middle schoolers are their own beast, right? But I was even more amazed at some of the relationships that some of these middle school kids had with Jesus. Since then, I met kids that have incredible relationships, personal relationships with the Lord, all the way down into elementary school. And I'm blown away by it. But you know, when you get in these parties or sometimes when you get in certain situations, kids aren't quite as welcome, right? Sometimes even in adult conversations, we'll talk over the kids, not acknowledge the kids. They're running around doing their thing, but we're kind of about, you know, just dealing with the parents at that point. And what makes a good youth minister is he's one that can look at the kids and own them as his, right? That they can talk to them just as they're a real person, which they are. And is able to connect with them in the real way when so many, else, so many other people just kind of talk over their heads. Jesus says, I don't care how old you are. You're two years old. I'm your God. And I love you. And you can come to me anytime. You're a middle schooler. I'm your God. And you can come to me. And I love you anytime. No matter what age you are. No matter where you are in your life. You have a God that will take time out of his busy schedule. And I guess God's busy, right? Sit down with you and hang out. Asking you how your day was, asking you what your feelings are, asking what's going on in your life, what you're struggling with. He is a God that is intimately involved and cares about your life. And he always, always, always has time for you. I want you to get those words of comfort just as even as he goes through this, just this small text. God loves you individually. He created you specially. And as such, he always has time for you. There's another thing here that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God uh, like a little child does not enter it. One of the unique things about kids, especially little kids, and actually is, if you look at the Greek, it's actually referring to little kids. So the, the youngest of kids, preschool age, probably in down, that, that age. And, and how much more it, it, impressive is it that Jesus takes time out for them and values them as individuals. But one of the unique things about this is they just trust in powerful ways, don't they? Unless that they have bad home lives and that trust has been ripped away. But mainly, they just trust. I remember when I was young, I, I mean, I don't, it was probably until I was 18, right? But I'd be able to go into my dad's house, you know, in his room or whatever and say, Dad, do you got this? Or I'm having a bad dream. Can I, can I hang out here? Or whatever the deal was. And I just trusted either that my dad could take care of it or that the bad dream would go away. I don't actually remember when that stopped. Maybe it was 20. I, but with the reality is, you know, I just trusted that somehow, some way, mom or dad had it, right? And kids, when they look at God, they just trust that he loves them. They, they don't even really think about it. They just know, hey, he, Jesus loves me this, I know. And they just embrace that and they just know that. And it's really not until life messes with them that somehow that simple message of truth gets complicated. It's not until something really goes horribly wrong that somehow they start to doubt his amazing truth, his amazing love, his amazing care for them. And it's not that the truth has somehow gotten complicated. It's life that's muddied the truth, isn't it? And so he refers to these little kids and he says, if you can't come to me with that kind of trust, I mean, that's the trust you need. And wouldn't that make life simpler? If you were going through a problem and you could say, God, do you got this? I'm going to give it to you because I just can't deal with all the stress, all the worry, all the anxiety. So I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to trust that you're going to work it out for my good. And if you could just give it to him and experience that peace, wouldn't that make life better? I mean, just breathe for a second and feel that peace. If after you've blown it big time, and you don't even, well, I'll give you an example of that. I, there was a gal when I was on Vicarage, I was actually a campus pastor at University of Florida, and she was in the chapel. 
one day and she was just weeping. And I'd never seen this girl weep like that. I mean, she was just uncontrollably weeping in the chapel. And it was midday. It wasn't even close to, to our time for the college group or anything. And so I went in there. I said, what's going on? And she said, I, I committed a sin that not even God can forgive. I said, what are you talking about? There's no sin that God can't forgive. She goes, this one he can't. She just had an abortion. And she was torn up about it. She couldn't believe how evil she had been. She couldn't believe that she had given up this life. And if you've ever known somebody who'd given a, get, had an abortion or, or been through it, it's, it's hugely traumatizing, or it can be. She was hugely traumatized, and she was like, God doesn't, couldn't possibly understand this. And I said, well, maybe not in this way. I said, but he does know what it's like to lose a son, actually to give up a son for the benefit of others. It's a little different than what you did, but... God does get what it is to lose somebody. And in this case, he lost somebody, his son, so that at a moment just like this, he could say, I forgive you. I love you and you're mine. And we began to talk about God's forgiveness because she was already racked with guilt. She was already sorry. It just happened and she was overcome by the guilt. She needed to know that God still loved her, that she was still his, that there was still hope for her moving forward. And she heard that word, and then she just wept some more, right? I mean, she just, but she finally grasped hold of just how amazing God's love was. And sometimes people just need to hear that. They need to trust completely that when they've blown it, think of the peace here again, that God's forgiveness is for them. And if you could, in the midst of your biggest blunder, experience that I forgive you from God, isn't there peace? Take another big breath with that one. Or how about your greatest fear? You don't know how you're going to figure it out. You're scared to death what this might mean for your family, for your business, for your health, or whatever the deal might be. You can't control a lick of it, and so you're just spinning with worry. Can you trust that God still got you now? If you can, and you can give it to him, breathe again that sigh of peace. Can you see how that would make life better, more manageable? Because all of a sudden, the stuff that you can't do, right, you give to the God who can do. And you trust him that he's working it out for your good because that's what he said he will do. Doesn't mean everything is good. Doesn't mean everything works out according to your plan. But I tell you what, he's working it for your good so that one day you'll be with him in heaven. And most of the time, just as a PS, we experience that good on this earth as well. He shares both of those things. Not only are you his... Is he your God? Then you can come to him at all times. But he is a God that loves you so much. And if we could begin to trust him, we'd experience all that amazing stuff that he's got for us. Now, this is also a verse that, that so often they'll bring up in baptism conversations. And it's a little curious that they do that. Other than this, the God's gifts are for everybody. Right? Whether you're a little kid or you're a big kid, you need Jesus' grace. And it falls in line with the teaching of Scripture that God is the one who saves. And the choice that we have when we begin to talk about decision theology, the choice that we have is to reject what God's given us. Because I don't know a person that's made a decision for Jesus that isn't responding to what he's already been doing in their heart. Fair enough? It's always a response to what he started in our hearts. It's always a response to what he's done. It's always realizing how amazing it is that gets us to that point where we say, man, I want to follow. And so if it's always Jesus doing the work, and he says, don't let anybody be hindered from coming to me, he says, baptize all of you. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrament 
uh, circumcision. And the New Testament, baptism is the sacrament. And in the early church from the earliest times that we have records for, so this goes all the way into the first century A.D., there's, there's um, rites for infant baptism. They took the rite of circumcision, which, by the way, happened on the eighth day. And, they, and why did they bring circumcised kids on the eighth day? Because from the very earliest moments of that kid's life, they wanted them to be part of God's family. And why do we baptize on the eighth day? Because from the very earliest moments of this kid's life, we want them in God's family. And so for the tradition of the church, for 19, well, 1,950 plus years of the church, people baptized their kids as early as they could or on the eighth day so often. It was just part of the historical narrative of our church body. It was following through with the experience in the old, and they say instead of circumcisions, which is clearly void, we now baptize our kids so that they can experience God's grace and mercy because it's a gift. And the whole idea of confirmation, you heard the word, it's confirming that baptismal promise that was made by the parents to build on what it is that these kids received. And just like everything else, these kids have it unless they reject it. And we know kids that have. But we also know a ton of kids that have received that promise and not had a moment in their life where they haven't experienced God's love. And so all those things are kind of wrapped up in that verse. And then he goes on to another one. And a ruler asked him, good teacher. Now, what's kind of confusing about that term, good teacher, is that they would never, ever, ever have called a teacher good. Pharisees would never, ever do this. The, the, the scribes never, ever do this. Nobody, none of the Sadducees, nobody would have called a teacher good because there's only one good person, and that's God. And so by attributing goodness to a teacher, you were saying basically they were God. So nobody would ever do that. But this young ruler, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, just kind of correcting him a little bit, but also causing him hopefully to reflect a little bit. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Jesus is God. He actually was right on by calling him good teacher, but he wanted him to think about it. Do you actually mean that you think I'm God? Is that what you're saying? Or are you looking at yourself and are you thinking you're God? I mean, if you think you're good and without error, without sin, maybe you think you're God. I don't know. But the reality is, I want you to think about this whole idea that there's only one who is good. Everybody else is filled with sin and need of redeeming. And that you're calling me that one that is good. Think about that just for a second. But it's like so often we have conversations, probably just blankness, right? So Jesus continues. He says, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mom and dad. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, the young ruler is going to come and he says, what must I do, right? What, what action must I do to attend eternal life? Jesus tried to get him to start thinking about the fact that maybe he isn't perfect, which is the only way. By the way, there's two ways to heaven. You can be forgiven by Jesus for all your sins, or you can be perfect. Okay? I mean, there's two ways. If you can be perfect, you don't need Jesus, right? You can just say, hey, God, we're good, right? I haven't done anything wrong. I'm coming up, right, whenever you're ready. On this side of heaven, nobody's perfect. I mean, that's the reality. That's why all the Pharisees says there's only one that is good. That's why Jesus says to this guy, there's only one that's good, but he's not getting it. 
So he's going through the Ten Commandments. By the way, if you ever want fodder for confession, and, and I've shared this periodically, I think confessing sins is one of the healthiest things you can do to write your relationship with God. It brings you that humble and contrite heart. It helps you experience that peace and that grace that he has for you. It kind of resets your relationship, I think, in a really healthy way. And if you ever kind of wonder, man, I just don't know what to apologize for. I'm so awesome. You know, just go through the Ten Commandments. I can't get through past commandment four. And, and that's just pretending I, could, I was really in-depth in the first three. But commandment four is honor your mother and father. And it's at that point where I say, God, I'm sorry for being such a crappy dad. I'm sorry for being such a crappy son. I'm sorry for being, you know, such a crappy path. I just go through all my relationships and I go, oh man, am I a train wreck? Because there's always things I could do better. Is that not right? There's always things that I could have said to comfort or to heal or to strengthen or to do something more than I'm doing. I can't ever get past that particular commandment, but you can't get through the Ten Commandments without finding things to go to God for and say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me and heal me. Give me the strength to make this relationship right. And so Jesus is doing that with this guy, and he says, okay, you didn't get the first part. Look at yourself in light of the Ten Commandments. Have you really kept those? And he said, yeah, all these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he's like, he's just not getting it. So I'm going to take it to another level. And he said, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Nothing, in other words, should be before God. Nothing should be before God. You should be willing to give up all for God, right? That's what the commandment teaches. The next nine commandments are really just commentaries on that first one. And so, he puts this young man to the test. Okay, if you're perfect, right, like you say you are, then give up all your financial means and come follow me. Because if I'm truly the number one thing in your life, this won't be a deal. You'll be ready to do it. And it's true. If you're perfect, you would be able to give up all that you have and follow him. So he presents that to this young man. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for as he was extremely rich. Why did he become sad? Because when push came to shove, he couldn't give up all that he had for Jesus. He couldn't give it all away for God. There was something that was more important to him than his relationship with God, thus showing his imperfection. Jesus, seeing that he would become very sad, then said this, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter in the kingdom of God? Now, imagine Jesus saying to this who had a buck fifty to his name, give it away, here you go, you know, let's go follow, this has got to be better. For somebody who doesn't have anything, give it, think of a college student, Give it all away. I mean, their biggest struggle would be like their stereo. Actually, that's not true anymore. Uh, iPhone. You know, I mean, give it all away. Okay, you know, but now you have a house and you have cars and you have all this stuff. You have stuff for the bank. I mean, it's a, you're asking a little different level, aren't you? It's harder for you, isn't it, than when you were in college looking on the curbs for your sofa. It's just different. And so it's a whole lot more of a leap of faith to say, God, I believe you still got me. I believe that if I do this, you'll still provide. That you'll still get me through. Because what are you giving up when you give it all away? Control? 
control and the sense of security that you've built in that you're controlling. But to do all that, you have to say, God, I trust you completely. Remember Job? I, I think I preached on him a little bit ago. He had lost everything, right? I mean, he lost his kids. He lost all his possessions. Everything but a nagging wife, right? I mean, he lost it all. And what did he say after he lost it all? Before God started, or uh, Satan started afflicting him physically, he said, naked I was born, or I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had just lost everything, and immediately his response is, God's got me. He's going to get me through this, Right? It wasn't until Satan upped the, upped the ante a little bit, went after his body. And by the way, if you want, you have to imagine this is the most painful thing that Satan could come up with, open sores that he's kind of scraping with a rock. You just imagine the pain. But it wasn't until he upped the ante with that, that all of a sudden, and it wasn't like Job was rejecting God, but he was just like, why? You know? So Jesus ups the ante to this young man to help show him what? That he was a sinner in need of a savior that he wasn't perfect. And if you want to enter heaven without Jesus, you've got to be perfect and you've got to be willing to do all these things. And then he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We've talked about that. It's for it is easier to, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. And those who heard it said, who can be saved? There was a rationale back in that time that just believed that if you were rich, it was a, uh, a ramification or a blessing of being obedient to God. Because what does being obedient to God generally give you? Blessing, right? And, and if you're generally obedient to God, you're experiencing all this blessing. And so they would, or they would look at riches as an evidence that you were walking the talk, that you were being faithful to God. But Jesus kind of spins that on the head and said, but... It's harder to trust God, have faith in God completely when you've got a ton of stuff. And then he says what's impossible with men, and it is impossible with men. Nobody can be perfect in this life. There is no entrance into the kingdom of God if it's up to you. I'll share this again. My buddy, was, somebody asked him, are you going to be in heaven? He goes, I hope so. I hope I've done enough good stuff. And he came and said, is that the right answer? And I said, oh, buddy, no. You, you haven't done anywhere close to enough. <laughs> you're, you're, if you're relying on that, you're, you're in a big bunch of doo-doo, right? I mean, you're in trouble. I said, what we cling to is that Jesus has done enough. Jesus' salvation, his death on the cross, covered everything. And it's because of Jesus, not because of you, that you're forgiven. So he says what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, well, we have left, homes and left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many, many times more in this time and in the ages to come, eternal life. So Jesus is just saying, if you have given up anything from me, I will restore it in spades, right? I will bless you beyond your, your comprehension. But before you lose this, I want you to notice the things that he encouraged. He just talked about money, right? Money's a hard thing to give up. But then what does he add here? If you left house, that'd be a big thing for people. And then he goes into actual relationships. If you've left your wife, goes on if you've left your kids. That seems like neglect, right? That means like, it seems like bad parenting. And yet, who is more important than your wife or kids? Jesus. That's a hard thing too, isn't it? 
And yet there's people that struggle with that exact question all the time. Kids decide to pursue a sinful life, living together, homosexuality, in the whole sort. There's a whole bunch of different ones that they could pursue. And sometimes they come back and they said, this is just what we're doing. If you don't accept it, you don't love me. And it puts the parents into kind of one of those false choices. Because what the right answer is, oh, I love you so much, but you're being an idiot, right? I, I love you so much, but you're sinning against God. And there's going to be complications in your life. And I love you too much just to let you go do that and say nothing. I love you and you know that I love you. You're asking me to choose a false thing. I choose to follow God and to love you at the same time, but we're not going to blend those lines. People are asked to make that choice. Do I love my kid more or do I love God more all the time? And when they say, I love my kid more, they, who do they blow off? God and his truth. Do you love God more than your kids, more than your spouse, more than your homes, more than your money? He says, I want to be first. And if we can't answer, yes, you are first, we go to God and we say, we're sorry. Help me not be so clung to the things that are. Help us cling to you. And after taking the 12, he said to them, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem. So we're getting excited. He's going up to Jerusalem now. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. They're excited because they think that means he's going to become king, Right? And then Jesus goes on, he says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. By the way, first time that the Gentiles are mentioned. Usually it's always the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, right? And they're going to persecute him. But now it says he'll be turned over to the Gentiles. And what do the Gentiles do when they get a hold of Jesus? Well, they do mock him and shamefully treat him and spit upon him. And after flogging him, so he even foretells that, they will kill him. Doesn't say on the cross, but that they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Again, Jesus gives another very clear description of what's going to go down in just a little bit. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what it said, what he said. I don't know if you've ever had an expectation of things going one way. And it was just a firm expectation of whatever it was. And it didn't matter who said anything contrary. You were just positive it was going down this way. Right? I, it, at the beginning of the season, I said the Detroit Tigers were going to be world champions this year. Right? And no matter how many losses they build up early on, man, I was just so sure that was going to happen. I, I think they're almost mathematically uh, out of it now. But the reality is, we're so sure... That even when we hear things to the contrary, it seemed like confusion, right? These people, they were ready for Jesus to be king. The messianic king that all the Pharisees had taught them since they were little, right? This is the guy that's going to come into town. He's going to get rid of Rome. He's going to bring priest to Israel. He's going to bring priest to all the people around us. And if they don't want to have peace with us, we're going to destroy him. That's what the Messiah was supposed to come and do. Restore peace on the earth with Israel as its capital. And all the, all the, everybody will bow to this messianic king in, in Jerusalem. That's what they were taught from very early on. They knew some of these other prophecies, but they just didn't mix, and so they didn't talk about them a whole lot. So this was the firm expectation. But Jesus kept saying he was going to die and rise again. He was going to be mistreated, all these different things, and it just, it just didn't make sense. Perhaps it was even God's divine purpose to keep them out of that so that they could experience all that would transpire. As he near, or drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. 
And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And he told them, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But then he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do, uh, do for you? And he said this, Lord. And in the Greek, it's the messianic title, right? He's calling him the Messiah in this. Lord, let me recover my sight. Before all those people, I mean, he crying out. He wasn't going to let Jesus not be for him. That's an extraordinary amount of faith. I'm not letting you go by without me trying my best, right? He's crying out to God. And when Jesus comes up to him face to face, he says, Lord, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight for your faith has made you well. Thus confirming that this title that this man used was valid. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and and all the people saw it and they gave praise to God. I'm sure not understanding the full extent of what just went down, but man, if he was saying he was Messiah and he was just healed, this is the guy. And they were getting more and more excited. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus and he was the chief tax collector and was rich. Chief tax collector just means he had a lot of tax collectors underneath him. He was probably the ones that sent them all out to gather all the money. They would give him the money. He would take his cut and send it off to Rome. So he's exceedingly rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. I talked about this a little while ago, but is there a difference between someone who is seeking the Lord and someone who just says that they know the Lord? I think so. When I was, uh, before I started dating my wife, there was this guy, actually it was an insurance guy, a church insurance guy that came to our church and I think for, God sent him from heaven because there was no single people at my church. Well, there was one girl, but no, there was no single people at my church. Okay, so, so anyway, and I was just praying, I got, you got to send somebody here because there is nobody here and I'm spending all my time here, like 24-7 at this church. And so he sent this insurance guy and he says, oh, I think it's horrible that there's a pastor that's single. So he made it his quest to set me up with girls. Blessed be God, right? I mean, yes, yes. And so, he, and so he said, do you have any qualifications? And I said, well, and you'll think poorly, but I said, I want somebody who's seeking the Lord. That was the good part, okay? And I want somebody who's hot, right? That was my second part. So, so I, I just, I, I want those two things. Those, those are the only qualifications. As long as they're good looking and they're seeking the Lord, which means they're somehow showing evidence of that, right? And he would go to all these different churches and then he'd call me up and say, I got another one. You got to check this one out. So, so then he'd give me the number and, and he'd actually ask these girls, which is befuddling to me, is it okay if I give your number to a pastor who's single? He, you know. He just wants to date or something. And girls would be like, all right. You know, I don't know how that all worked. But anyway, he'd give me their numbers and I'd call them up, right? And Beth, and this is another great, she was the second gal. So, I mean, and I only went, anyways, and she's the one that worked. And I was so grateful for that. So, where's my point in this? I had a point. Darn it, I get in these stories. Seeking, seeking. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know, I said hot and I got all the last. Okay, so this idea of seeking, okay? 
She was actually seeking the Lord at that time. She was involved in the youth group at her church. She was trying to help these kids get to know Jesus. She was going to church on a regular basis. She had been through, so you know, everybody goes through hard times in, in college and she was just, she was in a good place with God and she really wanted to get to know him better. I guess that's what made her foolish enough to go out with a pastor, right? And then during our first year of, of, of dating, she actually by herself decided, I need to read through the Bible. I'm dating a pastor. I, I should know this stuff. So she began reading through the Bible. Didn't even tell me until she was almost done. All those were evidences that she was seeking to grow in a relationship with God. The fact that you guys are here tonight on a Sunday night digging into God's word in a different way gives evidence that you're wanting to have a deeper relationship with him, to get to know him more. There's a difference between seeking God and just knowing about God. Zacchaeus was seeking the Lord. He was seeking to see this guy who he heard so much about. And so he can't see him because there's people in the way. And so he climbs up on a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that passed that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I don't want you to lose the import of this. Jesus has taken his sweet time getting to Jerusalem, right? And one of his last acts before he actually goes into the city of Jerusalem, he says, I'm staying here tonight. You actually are a destination on my trip. I plan to come this way to see you. So, buddy, I need you to get down because we got to go to your house, because I got some more stuff I want to share with you. And the crowd started kind of complaining. Like, uh, he's going to go hang out with the sinner. What does it say here? Um, so he hurried down, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, the crowd that was there. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, it was a government-sanctioned sinner, and I was trying to think of examples today about what that would be. I, um, and there are, think about um, maybe a politician of a party that you don't support. Um, okay, so if, if Zacchaeus was Trump, for some of you that would be a real challenge, wouldn't it? And if Zacchaeus was uh, Hillary Clinton, that would be another challenge for some of the other ones, right? So imagine this political figure of the opposite party coming and having Jesus come to them in particular and say, I need to spend time with you. You'd be like... Jesus, I don't think you know what this person's about. I don't think you know how they're ruining America or whatever your deal is, right? I don't think you know. Or, or maybe if you're a little more pious, you're thinking, well, maybe they own a casino or maybe they run a vape shop or maybe they run, you know, California marijuana store or whatever and, and they're destroying the, the health of our young people or something like that. And you think, yeah, I don't think you know what they're doing, you know? Maybe they're the IRS. I, I mean, whatever. But, but the reality is they're doing things that you feel like is just evil, and here Jesus, he's going to go hang out with them, right? He's, oh, I got a better one. Um, I don't even know what it's called. Um, uh, uh, kind of one of those erotic dance places that apparently are legal because they're open, right? Strip club. strip club, there we go, thank you. Um, so you own a strip, pastor's going to go hang out at that, at, that guy's, at that guy's house. Jesus is going to go hang out at that guy's house. I don't think you know what he does for a living. And so they're all grumbling. Why? It's not that they're not sinners, but they just view that this guy's worse. Fair? And we always do that in life. We maximize other people's sins and we minimize our own. I think you see that in the media a lot. We crucify people for stuff they've done, but don't look too closely at us, right? 
And we do that all the time, and, we do, and, and that's really the core of self-righteousness. We somehow pretend that we've got it all together, even though we're broken and messed up, and we vilify anybody for a sin that we're actually not pursuing at the moment. And so they looked at Zacchaeus, and they hated him. He was a representative of Rome. He was one of their people. He was gouging them fiscally. He was becoming rich on their backs. They hated him. And Jesus, he was going to show mercy to him? And then as a way of, I guess, showing evidence that Zacchaeus was really bought in, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That had to be an extraordinary amount. Think about, would you give half of your stuff away because of Jesus? We have a building fund coming up, so think about that. I'm just kidding. Um, I give, okay, so where am I? And I give, okay, half of my goods and I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and you got to know that he had defrauded people, I will restore it fourfold. Actually, the rule was you restore what you did plus a fifth. He was going way beyond that and said, I'll restore it fourfold. I will make it right. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to your house. Since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So Jesus shows before everybody here, I came to save people. And who needs more saving than this guy? But as evidence that his heart has changed, look what he just professed to all of you. I'm telling you, he came to save all of us. I don't care what you've done in your past. You can't out the grace of God. I don't care where you are in your life and what you're struggling with. God can give you strength to overcome, and he loves you through the process. He just keeps calling you home, calling you to trust him, calling you to rely on him, calling you to receive the gifts that he's given. There is nothing God won't do for you. You can't get anywhere where he won't pursue you. He loves you so, so much. And so Jesus does this last thing. Uh, and then he gives a parable, and then we come on to Palm Sunday, but I'm just noticing the time. So we'll get to the parable in the 10 minutes next week and then go to the triumphal entry. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for just reminding us that you pursue us with your love because we're yours, because you've made us, because we are uniquely and wonderfully made, because you designed us, because you love us like your own child. Father, I know we get mixed up along the way, and I know we sin and complicate our lives, and I know all these different things, and that's why you sent us Jesus, so that every time we fail, you can wipe us down and say, I forgive you, I love you, you're mine. Help us like little kids, Lord, receive that truth tonight with all of our hearts so that we might experience the peace and the joy that you have for us. Father, tonight we thank you for Jesus. Father, tonight we pray that you be with Alex and James and, and that you be with those new, new parents because we know if we have kids, their life just changed. And so be with them and strengthen them. Uh, help Alex get all the way back healthy. Be with that little one. Help her be healthy. And Father, just be with this church and be with the families that make it up. Be a God of healing, of forgiveness, of strength, and remind them that you've got them. And we pray that tonight in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>